Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. On the show this week, BP settles potential claims over the Gulf of Mexico accident with one of its contractors, Weatherford, but Transocean, the owner of the Deepwater Horizon rig, blames the UK group in its first internal report on the accident. I think the stock market is probably not going to be terribly convinced by Transocean's defence either, just as it wasn't terribly convinced by BP's own internal investigation. It really is going to be up to outside opinion to make a final judgment on where the blame lies. As airlines prepare to comply with tough new climate rules for next year, we ask how fair is the EU emissions trading scheme for the aviation sector? There's growing concern amongst international airlines, but what is also very clear is that the European Commission and the European Union is determined to stand firm against all of this current discussion about what could be done by way of retaliation. And energy policy in India. New nuclear or renewables? When it comes to the policies that Indian government has and the plans it has for the future, to build about 20 plus nuclear power stations in India is a major decision that it has to go through because 40% of the billion plus population still lives without electricity. Let's start this week's show with two developments over the past two days. BP on Tuesday announced that it settled with Weatherford, one of its contractors, on the ill-fated Macondo well in the Gulf of Mexico, which was quite significant in the sense that Weatherford was the first contractor to settle with BP on the accident. Uh, But today on Wednesday, Transocean, the owner of the Deepwater Horizon rig that blew up in the Gulf of Mexico, has released its own internal investigation into the causes of the incident. And the company pretty much blames BP for the accident in the US. Now, joining me to talk about this is Vincent Berlin, our next writer. Vincent, what are the key findings of the report? Well, I think the overall key finding is that it's largely, if not exclusively, the fault of BP. And I think that's perfectly logical from Transocean's point of view. This is an internal report. This is a report that was conducted by people inside Transocean, and it just takes Transocean's point of view. So one should not be terribly surprised by that. But I think that is the key finding. And it it sort of outlines a catalogue of events leading up to what you would think from reading the report is kind of an inevitable conclusion, which was an explosion and a meltdown of the actual well itself. And it clearly satisfies a lot of anxiety inside Transocean about what, what actually happened and why it happened. One of the interesting things is that the report is different from the official U.S. Presidential Commission report that came out earlier this year, which seemed to suggest that the accident was a result of multiple causes, to suggest that all the contractors, including BP, the operator, made mistakes in the run-up to the accident. This is obviously different in the sense that it puts the blame squarely at BP. So what do you think Transocean has as a chance that this is going to be seen as defence? Will it be accepted by the regulators or by the lawyers? I doubt it. I mean, Transocean actually says this is not our legal position. So that's interesting enough. And there's another report coming out at the end of July from the US Coast Guard and the Interior Department 
I would be surprised if that took a radically different line from the original presidential committee investigation, which is essentially that it was a catalogue of errors by almost everybody involved. And interestingly enough, also, I think the stock market is probably not going to be terribly convinced by Transocean's defence either, just as it wasn't terribly convinced by BP's own internal investigation. It really is going to be up to outside opinion and outside legal opinion in particular to make a final judgment on the causes and where the blame lies. So the Transocean report is interesting as a sort of corporate defence policy. But beyond that, I don't think that it's going to have much impact on the official or legal view of the situation itself. What's your sense of BP's market position on all this? Because the company's shares went up over 3% yesterday after the news of the settlement with Weatherford. And they had prior to that been touching a sort of six-month low, which is obviously not good news for Bob Dudley, the chief executive. What's the market's view of BP at the moment? Well, I think the market's view of BP at the moment is that there are way too many uncertainties involved to drive the share price anywhere. I think that part of the difficulty that investors have is that there are two groups of other companies in the industry that BP is now engaged with. One is its partners in the well, so Mitsui and Anadarko on the one side. And on the other side is the guys that it was contracting the well to drill it. And Transocean falls into that category. Those guys are going to be much more difficult for BP to deal with than its partners. I mean, Mitsui has already coughed up a billion dollars to BP, and it only owns 10% of the well. So Anadarko clearly must be dreading the knock on its door because Anadarko owns 25% of the well. So the well owners are still very much in the liability limelight. Those guys who were drilling the well and acting as contractors, I think they're going to play a very tough game here. Because I guess the, the other contractor who has also been in the limelight is Halliburton, who pumped the cement into the well. They haven't come up with their own internal report Not yet, have yet. They? And in fact, Halliburton has said almost nothing about its own particular role beyond denying this or confirming that. I think the ultimate position for investors really is that regardless of all of the contractors involved and all of the partners involved in, in this situation, and there are a lot of them, the fact remains that it was BP's oil that soiled the Gulf of Mexico. That's why the BP share price is actually still in the doldrums. It sounds like we're going to see this settled out in the courts rather than anywhere else. Thanks very much. Let's move to the aviation sector and plans for airlines to come under the EU emissions trading scheme from the beginning of next year. It's the boldest move yet by Europe to make the rest of the world comply with its climate rules because it means companies outside the EU, in other words, most foreign airlines, will have to pay for their pollution. Joining us in the studio is FT Environment correspondent Polita Clark. And on the line from Geneva is Andrew Charlton from Aviation Government Affairs Company, Aviation Advocacy. Polita, can I start with you? What's the background to the story? So the background to this is that up until now, only a certain number of industries have been covered by the Europeans' emissions trading scheme, which is the world's largest international carbon trading scheme. They have been the very heavy emitters, the power companies, the cement makers and so forth. But from January next year, airlines are going to be brought into this scheme. And it's not just European airlines. It is any airline that flies to Europe. And that actually means that most of the world's largest airlines will, in fact, be covered by this. The airlines have been relatively quiet about this for the last year or so, but in the last few months, as this January deadline nears, we're seeing more and more opposition growing from countries such as China, from US airlines, which are mounting a legal case is just going to be heard in July at the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. And uh, there's a quite a large amount of opposition that's being voiced now. And so the EU is saying that they're going to stand firm. They're not prepared to back down. All of this was agreed many years ago. Everybody's known 
and it's coming in. Everybody can afford it. The airlines are saying, no, we were trying to take legal action for some time in the US's case. We're, we're unhappy about this. And there's even been talk in the air of potential retaliation from some countries. Andrew, can I bring you in here? What have you been hearing amongst the aviation companies? Well, I think there are a few things to say. There's growing concern amongst international airlines, by which I mean airlines outside of Europe that fly into Europe, and that's pretty well all of them. But secondly, what is also very clear is that the European Commission and the European Union is determined to stand firm against all of this current discussion about what could be done by way of retaliation. I think a lot of the arguing is posturing. I think there will be a lot of discussion coming up about the exact cost of this and whether you put the cost down as X billion dollars or four euros a ticket, which makes a, a very big difference in, term of, in terms of how it, uh, how it plays in front of the public. And I also think that there will be discussions about whether, in fact, this is a tax or not a tax, and, and we will focus at long last on questions like whether this is a tax. The big issue that sits at the core of this and that the airlines really can't afford to have discussed at great length is that, as a matter of fact, fuel on international flights is currently tax-exempt. And so any argument that says we shouldn't be taxed, we're already taxed into the ground, etc., leaves open the attack from the environmental side that says, well, in which case, why don't you just pay a tax on fuel like every other emitter, and then maybe the situation will get easier. Polita, how realistic is it going to be for the airlines to actually meet these obligations, do you think? I don't think it's as difficult as some of the airlines aren't making it out to be at the moment. As I say, if you bring it down to a price per ticket, it's not, depending on how far you fly, but even if you fly a long way, it's not a huge amount per ticket. Secondly, it applies equally to any passenger flying into or out of Europe on any carrier. And that's one of the reasons why, for a long time, much of the criticism of this was somewhat subdued. The European airlines can't afford to have this charge brought only on European airlines because it would put them at a competitive disadvantage compared to their non-European competitors. So they have been generally quietly in the background supporting the European Commission. Only in the last little while as, as the debate has become more strident and as people have moved up to a higher political level with state letters between governments and what have you, have the airlines come out from behind the bushes because they hope that they can get the entire emission trading scheme wiped away, which would obviously be the best outcome for them. I mean, there is this one very interesting scenario that we're facing where the scheme allows exemptions for countries with so-called equivalent measures, i.e. equivalent carbon reduction emissions programs for their airlines. And they are now looking at whether China meets that. So there's a very interesting idea that China could be exempt and perhaps a country like the US, which uh, may not have such equivalent measures, might have to be still brought into the scheme. What do you think would happen if that were to pass? I think there'd be uproar from the United States side. And I think what actually might happen at that point is the United States would start to look at what the Chinese measures that were deemed to be equivalent were. And I think that once the light starts to get shone around on that, it could be a little bit embarrassing for all concerned. The second exemption pleader I should point out to you is it doesn't apply to carriers that fly less than one flight a day into Europe. Well, lots to watch. Thanks very much, Andrew. So, Sylvia, we should actually know a little bit more about this issue later this afternoon because the US and the EU are having a meeting in Oslo and we may actually see some movement there in terms of what we know about the US's position in particular. Thanks very much. And to a final topic for today, India and its current energy policy. Coming up next month is an inaugural energy investment summit which is being held in Delhi. The summit will concentrate on investment potential in the renewable energy sector in India. 
It's an interesting topic. India is one of the most energy-hungry countries, and the country also has a very strong nuclear power program, which it's committed to. Joining me on the line to explain where exactly the country's energy focus lies is the organizer of the summit, Sangram Nayaka. Thanks for joining us from Delhi today, Sangram. I just wondered if we could kick off talking about India's nuclear plans. In the wake of the Japanese nuclear crisis, I think there's been quite a lot of vocal criticism in the country about these plans. And the government's reacted by saying that it will commission a sort of nuclear safety audit, which will also be made public. And there are also plans to set up an independent atomic regulator. Um, I, I just wondered where you see the nuclear program going in the wake of Japan. At the backdrop of the Japan disaster, India is planning for a massive nuclear reactor capacity increase. 70% of India's energy is generated through fossil fuels. We need to find alternate energy sources. When it comes to the security of these plants, there are major plans in terms of radiation disaster management systems being ordered uh, at the central level in the government to safeguard the plants in the future. When it comes to the policies that Indian government has and the plans it has for the future to build about 20-plus nuclear power stations, in India is a major decision that it has to go through because 40% of the billion-plus population still lives without electricity. The country is growing and the demand for electricity is growing, so India needs an alternate solution for the fossil fuels. Well, what is the current um, share of electricity supply from renewables in the country? 70% is based on the uh, fossil fuels and 30% is a contribution from renewable energy. Mm -hmm. Hydropower contributes to about 26%. uh, The nuclear power plants contribute to about 3%. And rest is all from the wind power as well as from the solar. But the fact of the matter is we need alternate energy sources to cater to the rest of the billion plus population. Thank you very much, um, Sangram. Thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Polita and Vincent in the studio, Andrew Charlton in Geneva, and Sangram in Delhi. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.